Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm Lindsay Mayland, and I'm so excited to be here. As I've been watching the birds start to migrate south recently, uh, it got me thinking about flying geese, both literally as the bird, but also in quilting. Flying geese are basic units for quilters. Some people love making them, and some quilters think they're a necessary evil. But no matter which camp you fall into, you probably will make many, many of them over your lifetime. So you might as well learn all the tricks you can uh, to sew them more effectively and quicker. So a quick recap for any newer quilters who may not know what a flying geese unit is. A flying geese unit is made by sewing two small squares diagonally to the edges of a rectangle. You then trim the corners off, press the small squares open, and you end up with a unit that looks like a large triangle pointing up with two smaller triangles placed on the sides to form a rectangle shape. Flying geese are commonly used in star block quilts, but they pop up in a lot of blocks and quilts because they're a basic and easy unit. Although it's an easy unit, there are a lot of places where things can go awry, including marking, sewing, trimming, and pressing. So let's walk through some of those common pitfalls and what you can do about it. First, let's chat about marking your squares. So in most cases of making flying geese units, you're drawing a line down the center of your squares diagonally, which is your sewing line. To mark your squares, try to find the sharpest or thinnest marking tool you can. So I like to use a sharp pencil or even a mechanical pencil to get a thin line, but a skinny marking pen works great too. And the skinnier your drawn line, the more accurately you'll sew along it. So if the line is thicker, it's easier to sew a little too far to the right or left of it, and then you have a sewn line that's wavy or crooked. If you have a lot of squares to mark for your project, you can speed things up a little bit by lining up a row of squares point to point on one line of your cutting mat. Then align your ruler along the entire row and mark them all at once. You can do a similar thing when you're trimming your units later on too. You'll also notice that in some patterns, um, especially some of those found in our magazines, they ask you to mark your squares on a sandpaper or a grit paper board. That's because when you're drawing a line corner to corner, you're pulling the square along the bias 
And if you're pushing hard on your marking tool, you can actually distort your square. So I personally have never had issues with this, so I don't bother doing it, but it's an option for holding your square and its original shape if, if this is something you're experiencing. So now, if you don't feel like marking at all, um, and hey, why would you? It's like a whole extra step, right? There are actually some products out there that you can lay on your machine bed to help you align and lead your squares through the machine at the right angle for sewing diagonally. So some popular options that some of you may own are the Clearly Perfect Angles and Diagonal Seam Tape. Both of these are removable, so it's not a permanent fixture to your machine, um, but we'll link to both of them in our show notes. Some machines also have a laser pointer so that you can align the diagonal of your squares with the laser to sew. And this is my favorite option and <laughs> I look for those laser pointers on all the machines I try. Next, let's talk about sewing. If you're struggling with sewing straight lines, you're not alone. I don't know why this is so tricky with flying geese, um, especially because you you have that sewing line drawn on your fabric. So maybe um, it's because instead of sewing something straight, we're pushing something through the machine at a weird angle, but things can go wonky pretty quickly, especially if you're sewing fast um, or you're not paying close enough attention or even if you take your hands off the machine for a second. I know so many times where I have been chain piecing a long line of flying geese units and I'll take one of my hands off the machine to grab the next pair of pieces to sew together and just in that split second of taking my eyes and my hands away from what I'm sewing, things can go wonky. So sewing slower um, and paying attention can help keep that needle sewing along that drawn line. I've also noticed that flying geese units are one of those units that your machine likes to eat. Has this happened to you where the point of the unit gets sucked into your machine while you're sewing the pieces together? It's such a frustrating problem, but I've found that if you have the option to sew the square to the rectangle from the center of the rectangle and not the corner point of the units, you're much less likely to run into this problem. Um, if your machine has a straight stitch plate, um, that can help with this problem, or you can use a leader strip when you're sewing, but sometimes I just find it easier to just start sewing from the center of the rectangle. Okay, now I'm going to throw a crazy sewing rule at you. So technically, flying geese units come out better when you sew a scant quarter inch seam allowance. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know? Like, why does quilting have all these rules that really don't make sense? Like, why don't the patterns just say what they mean? Why are you drawing a line that you're not really supposed to sew on? <laughs> but if you're finding that when you press your flying geese units open, uh, things aren't exactly squared up or the right size, the first thing to try is sewing a few extra threads away from the drawn line and toward the outside corners. And that gives this little extra space 
to account for the width of the thread, um, depending on the thickness that you're using, and the amount needed in the flip and pressing of the unit. So that little extra fabric bulk in that flip. There's also this trick you can use with pressing that can help too. So you can set your seam of the flying geese units by pressing on top of all of your stitching lines first before you press them open. So when you press on top of your stitching lines, this helps the stitching sink into the fabric. So when you press the unit open, you just have this clean straight line without the bulk of that thread. So these are a few things you can try if you're really finding that your flying geese units aren't perfectly squared up. And my last tips for flying geese units involve sewing them to other units. So it's always a good idea to trim the dog ears off if you have them. So those little triangle excesses in the corners of your flying geese units, those can cause extra bulk when you're sewing it to other units. And that can kind of affect your seam allowance um, just a little bit, but it can add up if you're sewing a lot together. If you're sewing a flying geese unit to another unit with bulky seams in the corners, it could even be another flying geese unit. Sometimes all of those layers right in the corners can <laughs> cause some problems. Um, and those can also like have that problem where your machine might get kind of stuck trying to go over that bulk. So you can start sewing on a leader strip or just a little scrap of fabric to help your machine gain a little momentum before tackling the seam bulk. Um, and then I also sometimes will pull on that little scrap to help kind of nudge the units through my machine um, if, if they're not going through smoothly. <laughs> and one of the most common struggles with flying geese units is losing the points of the units so that you're left with this finished block that has these cut off or flat points instead of those beautiful sharp points that we all want. So I like to sew with the flying geese unit on top when I'm sewing it to another unit. And this way I can see where my stitching line will stitch over the point of the flying geese and I can redirect a little if I need to. So sometimes you can adjust your quarter inch seam just by a little bit when you're sewing units together to make sure that your stitching line doesn't cut through your flying geese point. Sometimes you just have to move it a little bit over and you'll get that perfect point. Whew, so who knew I could talk so long about flying geese, but it's one of the most common units in quilting. So I figure we can all use some reminders or tips for making them easier, especially if you've been struggling with them. Because once you conquer flying geese unit, the sky's the limit for patterns. We're going to take a quick ad break, but when we come back, we're sharing tricks for sewing long strips together and sharing some tips submitted by our listeners. Welcome back. Now it's time for Back to Basics, a segment where we share tips and tricks about a sewing tool or technique. And today I want to talk about sewing long strips together. Pre-cut strips or jelly rolls are more popular than ever right now, and there are a lot of sewing projects that use them. 
Also, many quilters like to strip piece longer strips of fabric together and then subcut them into smaller units to avoid sewing those small pieces together. But sometimes when you're sewing a lot of longer strips together, things can start to bow and lose their crisp straight lines. And the more strips you have, the more things can start to curve at one end. But there is a simple secret to fixing that problem if you've noticed this happens when you're sewing. So here's the trick. Watch the direction you're sewing. You don't want to sew from top to bottom in your strips and then start again from the top and sew to the bottom when you add the next strip. That's the reason you sometimes end up with bowed strips. So instead, you want to change directions with every strip that you add. So for strips one and two, start at one end and sew down. When you add the third strip, start with the opposite end and sew in that direction. So by reversing direction every time you add a strip, you can make sure that your seams stay accurate and consistent. So how do you keep track of which direction you're sewing? So our trick is to place a pin at the end we started sewing at. So when we're finished sewing those strips, we remove the pin and place the pin at the other end so we know what to start there with our next strip. That way, if you need to take a break from sewing for any reason, you'll know where to start when you pick your project back up. And that's it, isn't it easy? Uh, I learned this trick a few years ago and find that my strip sets are so much straighter and cleaner than they used to be. So I don't always use this trick. Uh, usually for me, I find that my bowing starts in the last few inches of a long strip set. So sometimes I will just size my strips a little longer than I need them to be and kind of have that extra fabric that I can just chop those last few inches off um, and don't use them. But either way, it takes some of the inaccuracy away when sewing those long strips together. And now it's time for reader tips, a segment where we share your best quilting advice. I'm really excited to share this first tip. I got it in an email a few weeks back and have never heard of anyone doing something like this before. So I definitely learned something and have all these ideas kind of floating in my head for how to replicate it. So this tip is from Melanie Hayes of Orange, California. She says, I just created a small quilt to hang in my backyard using outdoor fabric. It's sewed up great and is weather, water, and sun resistant. It was so much fun to make. So she sent a picture of her quilt and it's a ribbon star block in yellow, green, white, and gray. So very much these bright garden colors. And she said that she skipped the batting in the quilt and she has hers hung from a little fence next to some gorgeous flowers and a walking path. And it's so beautiful, and it reminds me of wooden barn quilts, um, except that it was made with fabric, and it has that like more quilty touch to it. So I would love to make something like this to hang from my garden shed, 
So thanks for that idea, Melanie. This is definitely on my to-do list for next spring. Okay, now let's get into a few more other tips. So Liberty Rosboom from Spokane, Washington says, I save all the white tissue paper from gift boxes to use as tracing paper and for foundation paper piecing. I tape several pieces together to have a large piece of paper to lay over a quilt top to try out quilting designs. This is a great idea. I also never know what to do with those kind of like heavier newsprint type paper uh, that they stick in boxes to fill empty space sometimes. Um, they're, they're usually that off-white color, um, but they would absolutely be great for foundation paper piecing. Jeanette Algrim of Glasgow, Kentucky says, I like to make quilt tops in the warmer months of the year and wait until winter to quilt them. To keep the quilt tops flat and tidy until I'm ready to quilt, I store them flat on a bed in the guest room, piling up tops all spring and summer. <laughs> this sounds like a tip I need because I always put off machine quilting my quilts, but in winter, you would kind of be trapped inside, so it's the perfect time to force yourself to to finish all of those quilts. Um, I've also heard of people using their spare beds to hold finished quilts, so you don't have to worry about creases from folding your quilts into storage. Um, and if you're not using a spare bed often, that's kind of the perfect way to utilize it. <laughs> Okay, this tip is from Virgie Williams of Monticello, Kentucky. She says, Take photographs of your completed quilts and have them developed into 4 by 6 inch size prints for postcards. On the back, write your message, print the mailing address, add the correct postage, and pop it in the mail. These are a great way to send family and friends heartwarming messages that say, Get well soon thinking of you, or happy birthday. I love this idea, especially with the holidays coming up. It would be fun to take pictures of your fall or Christmas quilts and print them onto postcards or even cards to send to family and friends. Okay, Dory Richer from Chico, California says, I buy a lot of fat quarter bundles and sometimes find a printed panel included. If I don't want to use the panel in a quilt top, I cut it up and use it for binding. Because it incorporates all the colors of the quilt, it gives the binding a scrappy, pieced look without all the work. Great idea. Um, actually, earlier this month on episode 522, we talked about creative ways to use panels that come with your fat quarter bundles, uh, but we didn't even think to use it for a scrappy looking binding. So this is genius. If you have your own tips to share with us, send us an email at apqtips at meredith.com. We love featuring all your great ideas. So we're going to take a quick ad break, but when we come back, we're sharing tips to save you money next time you shop for quilting supplies. Welcome back. I'm now handing the mic over to Joanna Bergerino, the editor of Quilts and More magazine, for a segment called So Thrifty, where we share tips and tricks to save you money while sewing. Take it away, Joanna. 
Today on So Thrifty, we're going to be talking about buying in bulk and how to take advantage of sales to build up your stash. We're coming to the time of year when we get bombarded with Black Friday ads, promotions, sales, buy one, get ones, and my favorite, doorbusters. It can get overwhelming, and sometimes when you get caught up in the excitement, you can overbuy. If you overbuy, what was once a great deal is suddenly not a good deal, and in some cases, even a waste of money. But with a little bit of planning, all those sales can save you a bundle and really help you grow your stash. So first, I think the biggest thing you can do to take advantage of a sale is go in with a game plan and then stick to it as best you can. It can be easy to get caught up in the excitement of a sale, but if you're buying things you won't usually use, then you're not really saving money. Now, this goes for anything you're buying on sale, but it's especially true for your sewing habits. So first of all, I like to go through my sewing room and take inventory of what products I use often, products I'm running low on, and any projects I'm planning in the immediate future. I like to go through those three things because it really helps you focus in on what you need. I would suggest leaving off any pie-in-the-sky future projects, though. For example, I have this video game quilt with embroidered blocks that I've been hoping to design and make for years now. That's not the project I would go to the store hoping to buy things on sale for, because chances are what I buy is just going to sit and I won't end up using it right away. Many other projects have deadlines that are due before that quilt, so I would take advantage of sales for those immediate projects, as well as for any supplies that are specific to that project or fabrics I might need. So make a list of what items would benefit you and your personal sewing habits now, and then check out what sales specifically relate to those items. These sales could be either at your local quilt shop, I like to start there first since they have the best fabrics, and then afterward, be sure to check out some sales at craft stores and big box stores too because sometimes there are products that you can only get there. With your list in hand, let's take a look at what items make the most sense to pick up when they're on sale. Obviously, if you can find a good fabric sale, fabric is a no-brainer. Try not to go too crazy though with your shopping spree as fabric can take up a lot of space to store and let's face it, most of us quilters have more fabric than we can use in our lifetimes. Usually the best items you can grab during sales are notions. They're pretty small and easy to store, they can be used in multiple projects, and they're consumable items so you're always going to need more of them. My absolute favorite thing to pick up on sales are rotary cutter blades and sewing machine needles. You're always going to need more of those and they don't go bad. I can't remember the last time I bought those items when they weren't on sale. Scissors are also a great sale item to pick up, especially if you've been eyeing some nicer pairs that are usually a little bit out of your price range. If you sew projects that involve zippers, try to buy those in bulk as well if they're on sale. Buy the longest zippers you can because you can always cut them shorter for smaller projects or leave them long for larger projects. The extra versatility is useful when you're buying multiples and you don't have to have a specific project in mind, they'll work for almost anything you're working on. Anything with fusible, however, is probably not worth stocking up on. Over time, the adhesive and fusible can wear down, becoming less sticky or shedding glue dots and making a mess. 
A lot depends on the brand, type of feasible, the particular batch you purchased, um, and even the climate where you live. Humidity can affect your fusible products. Sometimes you get lucky and whatever fusible notion you buy lasts a long time, um, but I like to keep mine for a year or less. I just not willing to risk that it's going to mess up my project or be frustrating because it no longer sticks well. Finally, just a couple words of caution from someone who has done a lot of coupon clipping and sale watching in the past. Some sales are not all they're cracked up to be. I would advise being careful with any sale that requires you to buy a certain amount of merchandise to earn a discount or come on item. Sometimes the item is worth it and sometimes you're basically throwing money after something that you don't really need. If you have a larger purchase you're planning that meets the amount, such as backing fabric, it might be worth it to chase after that percentage off discount or you know, spend 20 bucks, get a free pair of scissors, something that you will get use out of. But usually when you chase after those sales, you end up spending more than the extra item or discount is actually worth. This is where that list comes in. It will help you keep uh, a sound head about you and, you know, make sure that you're actually getting the most for your money. I prefer to wait for sales that don't have any kind of cap on them. Um, some of my favorites are half-off sales. Those are relatively common and pretty easy to figure out the math on. And once you're in the store, just remember, it can be very tempting to spend money on non-sale items that you weren't planning on buying. That's part of the psychology of sales, and if you keep that in the back of your mind, it will really help you keep a good perspective and focus on getting the most out of your buck. Thanks, Joanna. Uh, I feel like that was meant for me. I just <laughs> uh, spent more at a store than I wanted to to get free shipping. And it was I ended up buying something I didn't need at all just to meet the requirements. So thanks for that recap, Joanna. It's always good to keep in mind, especially as we approach the holiday season. Now I'm handing it back to Joanna for quilting mistakes I made this month, where our staff shares both relatable stories of things they might have done wrong in their sewing room and also what we can learn from them. Take it away, Joanna. The sewing mistake I've made this month is not paying attention to my bobbins. I know that sounds kind of vague, but let me explain. Basically, I made a series of small mistakes that added up to one big headache and all of them could have been easily prevented if I had just paid more attention to my bobbins. First, I finally had some free time in my schedule, and I was really looking forward to an extended sewing session during the weekend. I was so excited to get started sewing that I didn't bother to wind any bobbins in advance for my project. I just sat down to sew with whatever was in my machine. I frequently use white thread for all my projects for precisely that reason. I can sit down and sew without having to think about my bobbin and without wasting any time. I figured the bobbin would match because it usually does. Except this time it didn't. I forgot that my last project happened to use navy blue fabric, so I had to change out my usual bobbin. So, you guessed it, navy thread was still in the bottom of the machine, even though... I had white thread at the top. I just never thought to switch that bobbin back out. 
And of course, the navy thread was noticeable on my current project, so I had to pick out all of those stitches and start over. So that was mistake number one on my quote-unquote relaxing sewing session that weekend. Then, instead of just winding a new matching bobbin, which would have made sense, I grabbed a partially wound one that I had in my sewing machine organizer nearby. It was probably the bobbin I thought was in the machine to begin with. It looked like it had enough on it. I mean, it was about half full, and I seemed, seemed like it'd work. So I didn't take into account that I was working on three projects at once, and they all involved a lot of chain piecing. The bobbin ran out of thread about halfway through one of my really long chains, and I was so caught up in happily sewing along and relaxing that I didn't even notice. I was so happy, too, thinking I was finally making progress on these projects, and nope. What a letdown when I figured that out, that I hadn't actually been sewing for at least half of that long chain. So with a sigh, I refilled the bobbin, and this time I did wind a new one, so I thought my problems were solved. I started sewing the chain again, but I noticed the stitching wasn't even in some points, and the sewing machine was being kind of temperamental. After fretting a little bit about my machine's health, it dawned on me that I hadn't cleaned the bobbin case in a while. Sure enough, it was full of lint, not only from my current hours of sewing, but also from several other sewing sessions the month before, because, again, I was being kind of lazy, and I hadn't cleaned out my machine in a while. So I cleaned out the case, reinserted the full bobbin, and things worked out perfectly. I was able to enjoy the rest of my weekend's sewing session and finally make some progress on those many, many projects. But at the time, all I could think of was, I know better than this. I could have just got a new bobbin in the beginning. All my problems would have been solved. It was so much wasted effort that didn't need to happen. So the lesson here is twofold. Number one, respect your bobbins. And number two, don't be lazy. Just wind a new one for your project. Don't assume things. Thanks so much, Joanna. Before we leave today, I just wanted to remind all of our listeners that you can get 60% off a year-long subscription to American Patchwork and Quilting. This offer is just for our podcast listeners. Um, I just checked today. It means your subscription is only $5.99 for six issues of great patterns and all fun extra stories and profiles and content. And let me tell you, we have some great things coming and some really amazing patterns and fun quilt alongs coming. So you definitely want to get your hands on it. So visit our show notes and there is this special link for all of our listeners to take advantage of this offer. Everyone have a great week. We'll see you in October.